Julia Child once said that people who love to eat are always the best people. I couldn't agree more. I'm Haley Forney, and you're listening to Best People, the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Best People, the podcast. I'm your host, Haley Forney. Normally, I will be joined by a guest. But today I thought, since this is the first episode, that it would be fun for it to just be you and I. Just you and I. And since this podcast is an ode to Julie Child's love of food, good company, and the value she placed on human friendship, I thought it was only fitting to start with the same dish with which she began her television career. Bouffe bourguignon. But let's talk a little about St. Julia and her influential career of cookery before we get into the food, especially as some of you may not even know who Julia Child is. Julia Carolyn McWilliams was born on August 15th of 1912 in Pasadena, California. Her father, John McWilliams Jr., was a prominent land manager, and her mother, Julia Carolyn Caro Weston, a paper company heiress. Julia was the eldest of three, and though she would grow to the height of 6'2", her younger sister, Dorothy, would actually grow to be a full inch taller than Julia. And while being a tall woman was great for playing basketball at Smith College, it was pretty difficult for women of their stature to not be looked upon as freakish in Pasadena's polite, quote-unquote, society. So after graduating from Smith College in 1934 with a degree in history, Julia McWilliams moves to Manhattan to pursue her dreams of being a writer. And we really have her stature to thank for her gumption and her willingness to try something that most single women in 1934 were not venturing out to do. Most college graduates in 1934 were graduating with their MRS degree, becoming wives. They were getting married. And that was kind of the goal for wealthy families sending their daughters to college. It wasn't to educate them. Um, even though Julia definitely had a, a love of learning her entire life, that wasn't really the purpose. The purpose was, we're going to find you a husband. So it's pretty amazing that after graduation, she moves to Manhattan and becomes a writer and she finds a copywriter job in the advertising department of W&J Sloan Home Furnishings. But when Caro, her mother, becomes ill, she returns home to California to care for her. Um, and after Caro's death in 1937, Julia stays close to home, um, and, but she begins writing for local publications and working with local advertising companies, and she also appears in some small theatrical productions, so she was always a natural performer, um, and the purpose of her being at home was because her father was widowed, widowered, and she had to help take care of the household, so... When war breaks out, and our country's at war in 1942, and John, Big John, remarries, um, Julia's kind of able to pursue her own interest again, and wanting to help out with the war effort, she tries to join the Women's Army Corps, um, but she's deemed too tall for the role of whack, 
and instead becomes a typist for the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, what we would call the Central Intelligence Agency today, or CIA. So, is Julie Child a spy? You might say that in certain circles. But it doesn't take long for people at the OSS to realize that Julia McWilliams belongs in research, not just in the typing pool. She is the first researcher in secret intelligence working with the director of the OSS, General William J. Donovan. Miss McWilliams helps in the development of shark repellent, and this was critical because sharks were kept setting off the bombs for German U-boats, so we didn't want to blow up the sharks. We wanted to blow up the German U-boats, uh, but the sharks were getting near the bombs, thinking it was food, and being blown up as a result. You might also say that this is where Julia Child's cooking career began, because this is really when she starts cooking professionally. You have to cook the shark repellent before it can be launched into the water around the bombs. Um, so, in certain ways, you could say that that's how she became a cook. While stationed in Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka, Julia meets Mr. Paul Child. And on September 1st, 1946, Paul and Julia are wed in Lumberville, Pennsylvania. And the day before their wedding, they were actually in a car accident. Um, and there's some really great old photos from the wedding of them cutting the cake with bandages on their face and <laughs> things like that. But they got married anyway. They were like, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> the idea of, I guess, all the Facebook photos of weddings would have been a laughable thing uh, to a couple getting married in the late 1940s, kind of a, an extravagant thing. So I think it's pretty cool uh, that, you know, they got married anyway, despite being in a car accident. In 1948, the Childs moved to Paris, France, where Mr. Child has accepted a job with the Foreign Service. And this, dear listeners, is really where Mrs. Child's culinary fascination begins. In 1949, Mrs. Child enrolls in a course at Le Cordon Bleu Culinary Institute. And after being placed originally in a housewife cooking class <laughs> with young French women being taught how to boil an egg, <laughs> Julia fights her way into a year-long program intended for restaurateurs under the tutelage of Max Bugnard, who had worked with Auguste Escoffier. And Escoffier will be important when we're talking about Bourbon later. Uh, Mrs. Child would enter an all-male cooking environment. And other women may have been intimidated by this, um, but really, you know, after, first of all, being a writer in Manhattan, a copywriter in the advertising, which would have been a male-dominated world, and then she becomes a researcher for intelligence, for, you know, the CIA, or what we would call the CIA, um, I think she was just used to being in male-dominated environments. And so she really, other women might have been afraid, but her eagerness to learn and her, more importantly, her willingness to show them that she could really do stuff really allowed her to thrive. And in 1951, she would receive her diploma from uh, La Cordon Bleu, but this is only after failing her first exam in 1950. So... If anything, Julia Child really shows us that at first, if you don't succeed, try again, because no one can really shut a door on you if you're willing to, to ram it down with a battering ram. 
During her time in Paris, Mrs. Child is introduced to Simone, Simka, Beck, and Louisette Bartol, and together they would create L'École de Trois Gourmands, the School of the Three Gourmets, charging $5 for each cooking lesson, which was really hardly enough to cover the cost of food. But this was really about learning, teaching other people, and creating this collaboration. And the collaboration would lead to Julia Child's first book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, which she wrote alongside Louisette and Simka. And after nine years of researching, writing, recipe testing, measuring, on Julia's part... Uh, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 1, was released in 1961, and it was released in the United States. So it was really targeted and meant for the servantless American cook. So they were really thinking about housewives when they were writing Mastering the Art of French Cooking. This launches a whirlwind press tour and omelet making on live television, and Mrs. Child was a natural performer. So it seems almost inevitable that she would turn her attention to television. And I think, you know, in uh, Alex Proudhon's second book, The French Chef in America, he really talks about her fascination with being in a studio, being on stage, and, and performing. She really was amazing at performing. And the first episode of The French Chef aired uh, nationally on February 2nd, 1963, from WGBH, Boston, Massachusetts. And this show was groundbreaking because it was the first time since I Love to Eat, a James Beard miniseries that aired in the late 1940s, that anyone was in their own television series for the sole purpose of teaching the viewer how to cook. So this is the first time that someone really week to week comes into your home via the television to show you the skills to make a meal. Mrs. Child introduced French cuisine to the United States at a time when it was really considered fancy restaurant fare, meant for the upper crust of society. And some people might say that that is still the case today. The show was shot live to videotape from beginning to end, leaving little room for error, though error she did, and teachable moments became part of her on-screen persona as well as a way to encourage her viewers to try something new. You're not going to get it perfect every single time. And Julia Child was a great example of that. She would try to flip an omelet and it wouldn't go over. And so she would show you how to correct your mistakes because she was correcting her mistakes live, even though they were videotaping it. It was really a small studio filled with volunteers and they couldn't afford to do take after take after take. Plus, I think they would have run out of budget for the amount of food they would have needed to do if they were doing that. Um, but anyway, so Teachable Moments really did become a very big part of her on-screen persona. Um, and The French Chef was filmed through 1966, but continued to be in reruns on PBS until 1970, making Julia Child a household name in the United States. And Mrs. Child changed the way that Americans cook and the way that we think about food. 
So it's she's pretty amazing. I mean, she's definitely the patron saint of cooking in my eyes and many others. And mastering the art of French cooking, even though it was intended for housewives and, or for the servantless American cook. It's really professionals use it to this day. And I've been to many restaurants where they're making coco van and they're using Julia Child's recipe because it turns out great and you don't have to do a half of the steps that Escoffier's Le Guide Culinaire <laughs> demands. So it's kind of, she was really an amazing human. And her relationship with her husband, Paul, who is a wonderful collaborator with Julia, is phenomenal. And they are such a great couple to read about. And if you would really like to learn more about the life of Julia Child, you should check out My Life in France and The French Chef in America. Both are written. Um, My Life in France was written with Julia Child and Alexander Prudhomme. And then in uh, The French Chef in America, he uh, wrote by himself, um, kind of using her old letters and things like that, too, the same way that they wrote My Life in France together. And he, um, Alexander Prudhomme, is actually... Paul and Julia Child's nephew. So pretty cool uh, to, to read those books. So check them out if you have time. Now for the meat and potatoes of today's show. Beforeion. It's a stew with roots in Burgundy, France. And Burgundy is in the east central part of France. Burgundy is also a well-known wine-producing region of France. I'm sure you've heard of Burgundy wine. So it should come as no surprise that this stew gets a lot of its flavor from full-bodied Burgundy wine. Beef Bourignon rose to the top of the French food chain thanks to Georges-Auguste Escoffier. Escoffier was a French chef and restaurateur and a writer of the early 20th century. He was born on October 28th in 19. In, I'm sorry, in 1846, in Villeneuve-Lubeau, near Nice, in the south of France. And I apologize for my French pronunciations. It's been a long time since the French class. Escoffier's talent for cooking emerged when he apprenticed at his uncle's restaurant in Nice. Escoffier's technique was inspired by Marie-Antoine Carême, the first chef to create la grande cuisine, which would later be known as haute cuisine, which haute in French means high. Escoffier ran the kitchen of the Savoy Hotel in London from 1890 to 1899, and in this time at the Savoy, Escoffier really becomes a celebrity, and uh, not very many celebrity chefs existed in the 1890s. Um, in 1899, Escoffier leaves the Savoy to run the kitchen at the Carlton Hotel, also in London, with a brigade of 60 cooks. And he creates kitchen innovations that still exist in kitchens throughout the world. And it's at the Carlton Hotel that he also creates the idea of an a la carte menu. Before, when you would go to a French restaurant, you would get a tasting menu. So it would come with multiple courses and they would decide okay you pick menu a menu b and you kind of pick that way and each course would kind of pair with each other a la carte meant that you could pick different things you'd still probably pick a coursed meal because this was a you know fancy restaurant um and they were catering to the wealthy most mostly uh nowadays 
people, a lot of people go out to eat and middle-class people eat out at restaurants all the time. Um, but this was really before there was a middle class. So mostly rich people went out to restaurants. It wasn't very common for families to go out to eat as it is today. So he's really creating lots of innovations and, um, being Escoffier, not only did he come from a long line of restaurateurs in France, in the south of France, but he was also an army cook for a while. And I think he developed kind of um, the hierarchy of cooks. You have the chef, the cuisine, you have the sous chefs and so on down the ladder because of his military influence, which really influenced him. Uh, in his career, and that goes on to influence kitchens around the world. Um, you might say that Edison, that Escoffier did for cookery what Edison did for the light bulb, and he created sanitation standards too that were remarkably ingenious in a time when no one was really thinking about sickness being linked to cleanliness. People weren't even they didn't even know they needed to wash their hands in the late. Uh, 1800s, early 1900s. So you can imagine that someone who's like, oh, we have to have sanitation and we have to be clean in an old kitchen was like, what? Who are you? Uh, in 1903, Escoffier publishes his first cookbook, La Guide Culinaire, which is where the recipe for Bouffe-Borillon first appears. And La Guide Culinaire is still considered to be one of the leading books in the culinary industry. Uh, in Escoffier's recipe, you would use an entire piece of beef, braising it over two days. And though Mrs. Child considered Escoffier to be the great codifier, she and Le Deux Gourmands <laughs> create a version of beef bourillon that calls for three pounds of lean stewing beef cut into two-inch uh, cubes that can be cooked over three hours. And in Mastering the Art of French Cooking, they also know that like with most famous dishes, there is more than one way to arrive at a good bourguignon. And as the book is written for an American audience, they suggest a Chianti red wine for the stew. And I don't know if this is because maybe Burgundy wines were really expensive and they couldn't, you know, get them readily and easily available for the servantless American cook in the United States. Um, but at any rate, they recommend a Chianti. Uh, while it seems that the dish may have roots in Burgundy, it's also possible that it was an inventive dish of Escoffiers that he popularized from a, from a traditional lamb stew of Burgundy, changing the lamb to beef for the bourgeois clientele of the Carlton Hotel and for the people that would be reading the cookbook. So maybe not a prehistoric French dish at all. I don't know. Um, to this day, bourguignon is still served in French restaurants throughout the world. And it's one of my favorite cold weather and weekend dishes. It's definitely something that you don't really make it after work because it's, it takes three hours to get a good stew. But it's definitely something that's nice to have on a Saturday when it's cold outside. Um, and they, even though allegedly this dish has roots as a peasant's dish, it's not really perceived that way by our modern standards. And nor do I think that that was the intention of Escoffier when he first published the recipe in 1903. But when you're looking up all oh, the history of beef bourguignon, there's a lot of talk about 
oh, it's a peasant's dish, and it was originally a lamb stew. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, Escoffier was catering to his audience. Lamb would not have been as apropos for a pe- lamb would have been, excuse me, would have been more apropos for a peasant's dish. But considering uh, his very British audience of the Carlton Hotel, that could be why he switched the lamb to beef. Um, when I studied abroad in France, the French not too affectionately called the English roast beef, <laughs> which is slang for roast beef. <laughs> roast beef is similar to the English slang for uh, slang frog for a French person. <laughs> so both the French and the English people may find these nicknames only mildly offensive. And whether it was to satisfy the beef-loving appetites of the Brits or simply because he liked beef better, we may never know. But I think it's safe to say that Auguste Scoffier was the great codifier of le goût français, French taste, at least in food. Another one of Escoffier's great inventions, the bouillon cube. But that's another episode. I'm Haley Forney, and you've been listening to Best People, the podcast. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you will go out and you uh, will make beef boreal this weekend. It's supposed to be pretty chilly. So uh, I'd like to thank the Julia Child Foundation for all of the information that they supplied uh, for me for this episode, as well as... um, the school that Auguste Escoffier or still runs in Auguste Escoffier's name. Um, There's a lot of information online, thankfully. When you're putting together something like this, you rely on that. I would also like to thank Garrett Taylor for creating our opening theme, A Walk in the Park. Thank you, Garrett, for lending your talents to my little dog and pony show. Uh, I hope that you will subscribe and listen to this podcast. Until next time, bon appétit!